2: Our thanks to this week's sponsor, Hayloft Plants Limited of Pershaw, Worcestershire. You're greeted today with the sound of two very dry loofers being scratched together actually uh, loofahs, a kind of cucurbit, are suddenly in the news again. And I had a phone call earlier this week. Would I uh, record a piece on how to grow them for the BBC Radio 4 programme You and Yours, which uh, goes out tomorrow lunchtime? Hello and welcome to This Week in the Garden. I'm Peter Seabrook, here to exchange some news, views, a bit of seasonal advice and hopefully answer some of your gardening uh, quandaries. The weather here in Essex is uh, like a switchback ride. The uh, weather when the sun comes through the mist and low cloud, well, it's uh, almost Mediterranean. And then on those days when we don't see the sun, that east wind is viciously cold. Not surprising, I suppose, because uh, I see from the hedgerows that uh, slow bushes are coming into flower. We invariably get uh, a spell of really cold weather in what uh, the old countrymen used to call the blackthorn winter. It seems to come here in Essex uh, every March. So what's new? Well, there's quite a bit going on. I had these suggestions, some publicity might be given to Sue Allen and her daughter Tamsin from Millbrook Garden Centres. They propose to shave their heads in aid of the Green Fingers Charity on the 10th anniversary of Garden Relief Day, which is the 19th of March 2021. Uh, They hope to raise £10,000, which will go to uh, the Demelza Hospice at Sittingbourne in Kent. Melzer was the first ever hospice, I think, to have a small remembrance Greenfinger garden built way back in 1999. And today, some 60 of these miracle gardens have been completed by the Greenfinger Charity. A very deserving cause. I hear that uh, another pest is arriving in Britain called the stink bug beetle. It's been trapped in Essex, Hertfordshire and Leicestershire, similar in shape to a shield bug. They have a very wide host range, including a lot of fruit crops. And these uh, sap suckers inject saliva into developing fruits, which causes distortion to shape, stains the flesh and makes them unsaleable. Researchers are looking at uh, fine mesh netting and biological controls uh, as a means of control. I was interested too to uh, hear that Shrewsbury Town Council has planted 3,000 trees along the banks of the Severn where it passes through Monkmoor Nature Reserve. I have fond memories of trees along uh, that river. It uh, is uh, where we parked our lorry in attendance at the Shrewsbury Floral Fete in the uh, 1960s and 70s. We would work late into the night, staging huge floral displays uh, before getting our camp beds out in the back of the lorry and having fingers crossed it didn't rain so we avoided leaks through the canvas tilt. Those were the days. I hear that uh, the first UK asparagus is arriving in shops and I noticed too that the first spear is just popping through the soil from a few crowns I have planted in the polytunnel. So, won't be long before we have a really lovely, fresh, home-cut asparagus. There's a single hyacinth flowering in a pot in the kitchen and it fully scents the room. It's very refreshing when I come down in the morning and have that scenting the air. You only need one, so uh, I bring them indoors in succession. Once the flowers fade, the dying bells are stripped off the stem The compost kept moist until a couple of uh, forecast mild nights, faded flowers, the bulbs can be planted in the garden. There are several clumps now well established under our beech hedge as a result of uh, planting forced bulbs. Rhubarb too is on the move. You know, crowns tend to have scant attention in so many plots, so uh, do give them some general fertiliser. And if you can, once you've just tickled that in with a fork into the surface soil, give them a good uh, mulch of uh, well-rotted manure or uh, compost to help retain moisture and get much better crops as a result. For this week's interview, Graham Spencer of Plants for Europe joined me for a chat. Graham's job is something I actually uh, rather envy. He travels the world, finding beautiful new plants that we might like to put in our gardens.
1: If only I was able to travel the world at the moment, we have to do it sort of all by Zoom and telephone. We're not allowed to go real travelling anymore, which is disappointing and does make our job harder. I am very lucky. I get to spend time visiting growers and plant breeders and seeing the plants that will be in garden centres in two, three, five, ten years' time. And so, yeah, it is exciting. It's a privileged position to be in. Well, should we
2: set the scene first of all by explaining where new plants come from, how people get them?
1: sure it it's a it's a long and convoluted process so we'll we'll try and give the shortened versions uh, essentially new plants come from three sources um there are professional plant breeders there are people who have a business and an occupation which is to do nothing but develop new plants for our gardens and also for for other purposes, food crops, obviously. Uh, and the food crop industry is actually much bigger than our ornamental plant world. There are also what I call independent plant breeders who are often perhaps retired people, hobbyists, people doing it at a backyard level. And in the UK, we have a lot of people who fall into that category. We have a very knowledgeable public, lots of people who are very enthusiastic, have built up knowledge and experience in a good collection of plants and do a bit of plant breeding as a hobby. And then the third category are chance finds, which is where uh, perhaps someone finds an interesting seedling, an interesting sport or mutation and thinks well hey this is different to what I've seen before I wonder if other people will be interested in it too and that's when they tend to get in touch with us
2: well now for the very professional large-scale breeders where does the money come from to finance them
1: Okay. Well, we protect these plants with things called plant variety rights. And that's a form of intellectual property rights. It's like a patent or a trademark. And you can then use it to actually ensure that people who grow and propagate the plant variety must pay a royalty. It's not a get-rich-quick scheme. Unfortunately, the royalties on plants per plant are very small. We measure them in pennies, even though the plant might sell at 10 pounds in the garden centre, the breeder is likely to only be seeing a few pennies from each one. So it's very much a numbers game for us. It's how can we persuade as many people as possible to grow and propagate and sell this plant and pay their royalties back to us so we can get them back to the breeder, minus a little bit of commission that helps us pay our bills. That's how people, as you sort of generate an income and make a living from doing this.
2: And if any one of those uh, three sources comes to you with their latest offspring, what makes a good plant? I mean, uh, how do you uh, assess potential?
1: We always start off with the first three criteria, which you must have in order to get a plant variety right, other than a deep pocket, because plant variety rights are expensive. And those three criteria are distinctiveness, uniformity, and stability, distinctiveness, the plant must be different from all the other plants that already exist. Uniform, if I put 10 of these in a row, they do the same thing. And stability, if I grow those 10 plants for a year or two, they still are recognizably the same plant. They haven't reverted or mutated or become something else. So that's your starting point and I'd argue that actually any plant needs to be distinct, uniform, and stable. Otherwise, it's no good. But we also look for other things. We've got to have a plant that people want to buy, and so garden performance is very important. When I put it in my garden, will it Flower well? Will it grow well? Will it perform reliably? Nursery performance, which is different. Uh, You'd think that a plant that grows well in a garden would be a good nursery plant, but that's not always the case. So we need plants that are easy to propagate for growers, that in case of something which needs to be propagated by cutting, produces a lot of good cuttings reliably at the right time of year and is pest and disease-free, makes a nice plant which presents well in the garden centre. Because although a lot of plants are sold by mail order now, and increasingly so since the COVID crisis, we still rely to a large degree on what we call impulse purchasing. You walking past that trolley outside the supermarket door and seeing something and think, that's pretty. I'd like that in my garden. And so a plant which presents well in a pot looks great. And you think, yeah, I want to pick that up and put it in my basket.
2: Sitting here listening to that list and thinking that uh, if uh, my recently found all Cuba, the spotted laurel, has some potential, that's a frightening list of boxes that i have to tick it's got to root easy it's got to be hardy it's got to be
1: uniform what boy that that that's some hoops to go through graham and it's true that a lot of plants and i perhaps even say most plants that we see don't make the grade Uh, Some of them are still introduced, perhaps without plant variety rights, because the expectations of how it's going to perform in the market, how many plants are going to be sold, how much royalty income there's going to be for the breeder are not so great. Uh, Sometimes they're still introduced and still uh, offer for sale in modest numbers and in a small way. But it does have to be something really good if it's going to get mass market appeal and really be a success.
2: Well, could you take us through one or two examples? Um, And and, and there must be some stories behind some of those finds, mustn't there? I mean, if if for just a moment or two I deflect, we had a chance seedling in our garden, which was patented Verbena Seabrook's Lavender. Uh, And when it first appeared, Margaret was going to pull it up as a weed. Uh, (laughs) Thank goodness she didn't. I mean... it. (laughs) It sold a few plants since then.
1: <laughs> Absolutely, I have one particular plant springs to mind, Nemesia mertil, uh, which was developed by Martine Talwright. It was in the reject pile, and I happened to be at the nursery that day and saw it. And I said to Martine, "I think that one's good." And she said, "No, we don't need another one that looks like that. There's too many blue nemesias in the world." Uh, I persuaded her to move it from the reject pile to the pile of plants that should be kept, and yeah, it does pretty well in the market. So uh, I'm, I'm pleased about that. Your verbena, of course, uh, we have a, a, a new variety coming along at the moment, which was a mutation from Seabrook's lavender found by Robin and Christine Grant on the Isle of Wight, which uh, we've called Margaret's Memory in honour of your your wife Margaret which is a, is a lovely story to tell because Robin and Christine they run a tiny nursery in their back garden in, in Cowes on the Isle of Wight they uh, found it there they thought it was interesting they spoke to a few people who pointed them in our direction and we've helped them with your help to actually sort of bring this plant to market and it's going to be launched this year with a share of the royalties going to the Alzheimer's Society so you know a really lovely story about about a plant that has been picked out because of their sharp eyes and and their ability to spot something that was different and interesting.
2: And it couldn't be a more deserving couple from my point of view. Absolutely, working really hard. You know, life is not easy for a backyard nursery person. It's almost like the lottery, isn't it? You know. Yes, yes it <laughs> their is. Their ticket sort of came up and they were bright enough to see that the ticket was there.
1: Yeah, so much of it is chance, but also, as you say, it's the skill and the experience to spot something. It, you've got to have that chance come by, but also spot it and grasp it.
2: Now, was it you that came up with the name, or was that the nursery who's propagating it in big numbers now?
1: It was initially, it was the nursery, it was Kernock Park Plants down in Cornwall, and Bruce Harnett, who said, We think we should call it Margaret's Memory. He said, I think that works well. Alliterative names often work well. They stick in people's minds very nicely. And uh, he said, we should use this link and this story and see if we can do some good with it. And the name is really... Very important when we introduce a new plant, don't you think? Absolutely. My my favourite example from recent times is a new anemone uh, developed and found by Rosemary Hardy at Hardy's Cottage Garden Plants in Hampshire. And she chose the name after a lot of discussion. She decided to call it Frilly Knickers. (laughs) And uh, anemone Frilly Knickers has, has, has taken off hugely. And I'm sure it's partly down to the name. I always say that a bad plant with a good name is still a bad plant and will be found out. A good plant with a good name, that's going to be a good combination and uh, will always sell. You can't make a bad plant popular by sticking a good name on it.
2: I couldn't agree more there, yes. And it takes time you know, to get a new plant which has quality established and in the general vocabulary of the gardening world, I think takes five to seven years.
1: Yes, at least, and I, I- A really good example is Spirea, Warburton's Magic Carpet. It was bred by David Tristram in the 90s. It was a result of a very long breeding program. He started with Spirea Goldflame, collected seed from that, made selections from those seedlings, and then went through several more generations, saving seedlings, picking the best ones, saving seedlings from those best plants uh, until he got a plant which was what he was looking for. So a Spirea, which was compact with good foliage colour, excellent disease resistance doesn't get mildew like other spireas do and good flowers as well and also, coming back to my earlier point, a really good nursery plant. It makes a good pot full. it's colourful in a pot, it's easy to produce, it makes lovely lot of cuttings for the grower. So, you know, it's now 20, nearly 25 years actually, since it was introduced, and it's now a textbook plant. It's a plant that if you go and pull a reference book off of a shelf in a in a bookshop or a library or on your own bookshelves, you will find it listed. And there are so many new plants that don't get there. They don't make it into the textbooks, they don't make it to the websites, the lists of good plants. That one has because it's such a solid plant with a good name as well, but it's a really good plant. It's that combination of name and and fantastic plant.
0: Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile.
2: I mean he has a a really good history in terms of good plant introductions.
1: Absolutely. David bred some fantastic plants during his lifetime. Uh, Scabious Pink Mist and Butterfly Blue, which are hugely popular. Uh, Helleborus uh, Ivory Prince and uh, Helleborus Rosemary, which was named for his wife, and uh, that was the uh, was, was an outstanding plant. The first Helleborus Orientalis Niger hybrid to be brought to commerce. Uh, a very difficult thing, which people didn't think was possible, and he achieved it. Uh, many, many more plants that he's introduced over the last uh, 20 or 30 years. and Many of those are textbook plants now. They are the standard that uh, everybody judges other varieties by.
2: Well, Butterfly Blue, when you mention that, immediately coming to mind is a meeting in a hotel in Torquay between two nursery folk organising the launch of that. And I think uh, Butterfly Blue was probably one of the sort of pioneers of uh, new plant launches. Uh, It was um, stocked by all of the Garden Centre Association, if I remember correctly, at that time, and just went off um, with a bang from, from day one, immensely popular.
1: You saw all sorts of innovations with that plant. It was the fact that it had a trademark name. It had some branding. It was a very good plant in its own right. It was marketed in a colored pot. That, That was one of the first plants I ever saw where the pot was the same color as the flower. So, you know, that, that, that was an innovative thing. It was Nobody had done that before. And they did the same when pink mist came along a few years later, which David developed as a companion. Uh, they put pink mist into a pink pot. Those were some of the first sort of uses of those uh, marketing techniques in this country. We hadn't seen that before.
2: Well, now, are there some plants which sell well in one country? but not another.
1: I've got a good example of that. We work with a grass, uh, Penicetum advena Chelsea, and it's a very dark-leaved grass. It was developed here in Sussex by the late Arthur Shearing. Arthur had been playing about with penicetum Uh, you will know penicetum cetaceum rubrum it's very widely available and cheap Uh, and he was looking to develop something that was better than that he was sure that there was a better plant that could be developed so again he was collecting seed picking the best seedlings collecting seed from those and repeating that process and he came to me with 12 different penicetums and uh, I have to admit I was very, very <laughs> doubtful that anyone would pay money to grow this plant, but i I said to him look we 'll we'll give it a, a run out we 'll try it with some of our growers and see what they say." So we sent it for trial and the first couple of growers came back very negative. Uh, They really weren't interested. But I'd had a conversation with a German grower, a company called Selector Clem in Stuttgart. And I, I told them about these plants and they said, well, we'd be interested. Send us some samples, which we did. And they came back and said, this is really good. This will be big in Germany. And I wasn't sure, but I said, well, you know, I'll, I'll take your word. Let's see how we get on. And they set up production. And yes, it is very popular in Germany. We now have three growers doing it in big quantities in the, in the German market. Uh, some of the propagation is down in Turkey. And uh, it sells really well. In the UK... Not much at all. Uh, it's starting to become available. People are beginning to recognise it now as a, as a superb, superb variety and a really good variety, but uh, it's taken a while to get there. And in general, that type of plant not so popular in the UK market. So different plants, different markets. Uh, you know, if you go to Germany with a variegated plant, or more especially with a yellow leafed plant, they start throwing nitrogen at it and saying, "Well, why isn't it green?" <laughs> uh, yeah, yellow leaf things don't sell in germany and uh, it's been a constant problem for us to explain to british breeders in particular get very excited i found this yellow leaf plant it's fabulous and we say to them well it'll do very well in the uk and and ireland as well they do well in france and germany they'll just think it's sick <laughs> now what about the future graham can we twist your arm are you going to uh,
2: let us into the secrets of uh, an absolute wonder plant that's going to uh, break into the world
1: well uh, um, We've got two exciting plants coming through this year. Obviously, your new verbena, Margaret's Memory, is one of them. The other one that we're very excited about is polymonium golden feathers. And it's a new variegated polymonium actually developed in Australia, believe it or not, uh, and uh, by a, a guy called Steve Eggleton at Plant Growers Australia in Melbourne. And he was growing a crop of polymonium Lambrook mauve, which is a well-known variety developed here in the 1960s, selected by Marjorie Fish at uh, East Lambrook Manor in Somerset. And Steve was growing a crop of Lambrook mauve in Melbourne, and he spotted a plant with a variegated leaf. And he picked it out and set it to one side and nurtured it and discovered that it was stable, the variegation was good, the flower colour was good, and so he decided that it was worth propagating up and launching to market some plants were sent back to us here in the UK and we sent them to some growers in the UK and and on the continent and this year it will be sold for the first time so that whole process has taken nearly 10 years from the point where Steve found the first plant to the point where the first plants are being sold this spring and uh, it's so as you said earlier it's a long process it takes a long time we test these plants thoroughly they have to have trials in a nursery, trials in a garden. We have to get those very important photographs for catalogues and websites. We have to also just physically multiply the plant up. It's not like manufacturing widgets. We can't just set up a machine that will produce millions of widgets overnight. It takes a long time to start from one plant to getting to the point where you have enough to sell it to the public.
2: Just remind me again the name of that polymonium.
1: It's it's polymonium golden feathers, and uh, it, it like all polymoniums has that feathery looking leaf, and they have this lovely gold margin to them, very broad gold margin with a green centre, and the flowers are the typical mauve colour that you also see in the original parent variety, uh, polymonium lambert mauve.
2: Graham, is there one plant in your mind? That could be the pot of gold. I mean, uh, I think from my point of view, if we had a really daffodil yellow sweet pea with a wonderful fragrance, uh, it would have some potential just now. And our chances of getting it look some
1: way off. It's difficult, isn't it? Because tastes change uh, tastes are not fixed. And so what people ask for this year is going to be different from what they will want in five years or what they wanted five years ago. So uh, there was some excitement a few years ago when we started to see yellow flowered pelargoniums. I'm not sure people think pelargonium should be yellow. I, I'm not convinced. That said, we saw Petunia night sky come along a few years ago with its spotty flowers. I'm going to put my hands up. I thought it was ugly. I still think it's ugly, but my goodness, does it sell? So um, the answer to that question is, I don't know. I wish I had a crystal ball to see because it takes so long to develop a plant. The plant you develop today that you think might have fantastic market potential, well, sadly, you find in in three, four, five years' time, people aren't interested in it anymore and the markets moved on. So it's very difficult. There's a lot of guesswork in this. Well, I couldn't
2: agree more on the night sky. I, I, I thought it looked as if it had been beside the greenhouse when they'd sprayed the white uh, uh, shading material. <laughs> I, I couldn't understand why anybody would want to grow that, but there we are. Uh, um, <laughs> I have to say that uh, I always look to the fair sex who have uh, a better idea of uh, colour and fashion. Than I
1: do. And, and, and that's actually very true. Um, I'm, I'm lucky that uh, we're a small company. There's only three of us it's myself, my wife Helen, my assistant Nikki. I value Hells and Nikki for their opinions because uh, they very often pull me up and say, No, you're getting excited about that. I don't like it. And I'm not sure other people will. And it's still true that the majority of ornamental plants are purchased by women. It sounds like we're, we're making some sort of stereotypical assumptions about our customers, but it's true that uh, very often ornamental plants are purchased by women. Of course, by no means exclusively, but we do make sure and we work with companies who will have customer panels that they will go and trial things out with and show them things. And they often make a point of including women in that process because they look at things slightly different to blokes like you and (laughs) me
2: our tailpiece a quote from Georgie Sherry when someone asks me why he should be bothered recutting flower stems I tell him stick a band-aid over your mouth and try drinking a cup of tea bacteria can block the ends of cut flower stems in water which is why we do this uh, cutting when we refresh the water every few days. Incidentally, where cut flowers wilt, warm water, uh, that is up to 40 degrees centigrade, will help them rehydrate.
1: Up.
2: Our thanks to this week's sponsor, Hayloff Plants Limited of Pershaw in Worcestershire. To my producer, Rich Jarman, and of course to you for listening.